Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. I hope you've all been well. On this episode, I have a chat with Scott Tillema. I remember as a relatively young uh, and junior constable uh, watching Scott's TED Talk based around crisis negotiation and the uh, four principles that he outlined, which were understanding, timing, delivery, and respect. Since then, I've applied or incorporated these in my own experiences while serving as a police officer, dealing with people in moments of crisis, uh, in the private sector, um, in times like consulting, interviewing, um, and even uh, through networking. Scott is currently serving as a lieutenant and operated in one of the largest municipal SWAT teams in the United States. He's also an FBI-trained negotiator, a keynote speaker, and a senior member of the Negotiations Collective. Uh, I think this position of being an active-duty law enforcement member and also engaging in the private sector puts Scott at an incredible advantage of having direct, up-to-date, sort of real-world experiences um, that he can provide to all of us. Look, I hate to sound and sort of feed this narrative that the world is becoming more and more polarized, but in an age where conversations, debate, and discussions are harder and harder to have, I do believe that the art of negotiation is a critical skill set in order to have these you know, useful, productive um meaningful and even collaborative uh, dialogue anyways enough of me talking scott thank you for your service uh and taking the time to share your experiences with me and my listeners uh and also for the 5 30 a.m wake up uh, i appreciate that i know the time difference um is sometimes a bit of a challenge all right well thanks everyone for tuning in and please find scott on the links below all right cheers Hi, everyone. Welcome back uh, to the Tell Me podcast. Um, really excited about this episode. I have Scott Tillema here. Um, I was first sort of introduced to Scott uh, via his TED Talk. I believe it was in 2016. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong later on, Scott. Um, and at the time, I was uh, fairly new to, to policing. I was a young constable. Uh, and um, yeah, a buddy of mine just sort of pulled up the link. And it was... Um, it was certainly eye-opening. We, we get taught a lot of, um, you know, tactical communication in the academy, that sort of thing. Uh, to, to, to see it um, from the perspective of a negotiator um, and an accomplished negotiator like yourself was, was really eye-opening. Um, so, yeah, thank you for being on the podcast, Scott. And I know it's 5.30 a.m., so I appreciate you waking up nice and early for me. <laughs> Hi, Ilya. Good morning. Great to be with you and great to be with your audience. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, to kick things off, um, as the usual format of the podcast, it's uh, tell me about uh, your life. Uh, where where did it all begin? So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the suburbs just outside the city. Um, Eighteen years, fairly unremarkable. Had a uh, stable family, nice uh, middle class upbringing, and uh, went to school at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and that was kind of a, a big. Um, exposure to the outside world to see a lot of um, diverse things that I, I didn't see kind of in my my growing up years. And I was really fascinated by a lot of the people that I was meeting. And um, they're just very different. You know, they had different beliefs, different thoughts. They were from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And uh, it, it was just fascinating to see such, uh, such a difference from where I came from. Uh, when I was uh, growing up, I had an interest in music and uh, interest in sports, and that carried over into my time in college. And uh, one of the um, more significant pieces of school beyond my education was being a, a drummer in the Wisconsin marching band. And uh, I, I still am into music, still have an awesome music studio set up in my basement. Um, but being a drummer was fairly significant. And usually when I talk about college, I talk about my studies and I, I studied behavioral science. Um, I actually had three different majors. So I spend time talking about that. But a lot of my journey was really directed by my time in music and, and being a drummer. 
because not only did uh, that feed my passion uh, for music and performance, but it, it really taught me excellence and how to be good, how to stand on stage, how to have courage to perform in front of big audiences, uh, which actually turned out to serve me pretty well uh, much later in life. <laughs> yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, dr drumming as well, like out of all the sort of instruments, you're, you're sort of the backbone of any, uh, any you know, composition, really. It's, it's, you're, you're keeping the pace. You're, uh, you're, everyone falls into what you're doing, really. Um, and I just saw the drumsticks behind you there. That's, that's awesome that you've got the studio still. Um, what was, uh, so, you, I mean, you, did you go to law enforcement straight after? And then we'll get to that, obviously. But um, you had your three majors. You were a musician at university. And then what was the what did you do after college? So I graduated in 2002, and it was later that same year that I got hired into law enforcement. And uh, I, you know, I didn't waste much time getting a, getting a job out of college, which was which was good for me. Um, I had a little bit of debt. I was in college for five years and two summers. I was having a good time. Um, I let my parents know that I was studying hard, accomplishing all <laughs> my majors, but I was having a good time uh, ringing up some debt. So I needed to get into work right away. Uh, so I got into law enforcement and uh, it was something that I had wanted to do. I thought for a long time, it would be cool to be a detective. I was into the law and order series on television. So I was like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool to be a detective one day. Uh, and then, you know, you start doing a job and probably like most jobs, it's a little bit different than how it's depicted on television. It's a little bit different than what you might learn uh, in a classroom at a liberal university. Uh, so I, I started to learn what it was like to serve in law enforcement, but I still had that interest in people and why they think the way they think and why they do the things they do. The behavioral science piece of my education was still uh, very strong as I was young in law enforcement. So I started having thoughts about how I could specifically apply this interest within a very broad field where we can specialize in so many different things. Yeah. And I was uh, working in the Chicago area now, and there was a, a school, the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, that was offering a hostage negotiation class. And I was like, man, that would be really cool to get into that class. It just sounds awesome. But what was frustrating was it, it's not like an open enrollment class where people from society can sign up. It was part of their master's program in psychology. Right. So I was thinking, well, maybe I can find a way to sit in on this class and just kind of come and hang out. Um, but then I started reading about this master's program in psychology. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. So I, I read about the forensic psychology program, which is specific to law and law enforcement. I said, this is exactly what uh, I'm interested in. So in 2007, I went back to school for my master's degree in psychology, specific for law enforcement. And I was hoping maybe I could get this hostage negotiation course in there to really uh, go deep into uh, psychology, spe specifically in the field. And as it turns out, in 2007, there was an opening on the regional SWAT team serving uh, 70 different municipalities in the Chicago area looking for hostage negotiators. So at this point, I had only been on the job about five years. I was a little bit young and I had just started my master's program. Um, but I, I put all that forth as, as a candidate and I was selected to be a negotiator on this uh, regional SWAT team, which was really cool because I was probably still a little bit too young yet and still uh, too new on the job, but it was a great opportunity and I was determined to make the most of it. So yeah. that's when I got training by the FBI in hostage and crisis negotiation. It was an awesome course, um, a little bit different than what I was expecting. And then uh, got to work in uh, doing hostage negotiation in addition to my full-time work in law enforcement. And it was around that time that I had made detective so I was really kind of living all these great things that I was hoping to achieve at, at a bit of a young age. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, just just to go back as well, um, were you a bit of a outlier in terms of having the three majors? You just you know you've got that university degree, and then you've gone into law enforcement. Um, you know, law, law enforcement typically isn't a job where you need degrees for. Um, so you get a, a myriad of people. Um, and, and then on top of that, you you know, you, like you said, you went to a liberal arts kind of uh, sort of background. The drummer, like. Uh, did you, how did you settle into uh, policing initially? Yeah. So it's interesting because across the U S policing is very different. There, there are no national standards and 
Um, even within the different states, there's different uh, requirements and different levels right. of education and professionalism. And you'll see that um, there, there's some clips of police doing um, unusual or unprofessional activity sometimes. And uh, that's always embarrassing and, and frustrating to those of us who work for very professional agencies. And uh, in my agency, everybody's required to have a bachelor's degree. Everyone who's come in in the last 20 years has to have a degree to even test to be a police officer. So there's a, a little bit higher level of education and professionalism in the part of the world where I come from. So it's a little bit more normal to have this type of background um, versus some parts of the country that um, maybe don't have such, uh, such standards. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It, and it's one of those things as well. Like, um, I suppose anything else, like, you know, when, when something bad happens in law enforcement, doesn't matter where in the world you're a cop, it kind of gets, you get brushed, you know, cast under the same brush, uh, worldwide. Um, so yeah, going to the SWAT team. So was that, uh, if, am I uh, right in saying it was the, it was the NIPAS EST, the, uh, Northern Illinois, uh, police alarm system EST, uh, was that That's the SWAT us. team? Yes, and, that's and, us. Yeah, it's, and, a, it's a big it, regional team. I was going to say, so that covers, uh, is it the entire state of Illinois or um, how no, does that we, work? we cover about 1.8 million people in the Chicago area. Chicago, of course, has its own team and, and its own problems. Yeah. Uh, very respectfully to the city <laughs> of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, a lot of suburban departments, which is um, terrific because it allows us to um, have really talented people. You know, yeah. I, I realized really quickly now I'm working beyond the walls of my own agency that I, I have, you know, the best of the best. And um, I was learning from veteran negotiators who had done this, had done some work in their own departments and uh, with this regional team and uh, the team leader, she came from a career in law enforcement and she was amazing, really worked hard to teach us and make sure that we knew what we were doing before we had the responsibility of having this conversation yeah. and really you don't think much of it you know you're having a conversation looking from the outside in you know you're going to be talking to somebody but it's not until you really start the training to do this type of work that you realize that these are the most consequential conversations that you'll ever have yeah. it's not like you and I disagreeing what we're going to have for dinner and then we just say, all right, well, we'll do this. We're going to have tacos instead. And, you know, we just kind of agree on something. This is you have to be mindful of what you're saying, how you're saying it, when you're saying it, what you're not saying all the downtime. So everything in this conversation is really, really important. So you get uh, a crash course on influence. And that's that's where I really kind of put into practice. How do we get people to go the direction that we need them to go? How do people make decisions? And yes, this is very useful in my work in um, law enforcement broadly, specifically in crisis negotiation. But I started to realize that, you know, this is kind of the foundation of leadership, that you are now in a leadership relationship. It's not standing on stage preaching to the masses. It's, it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one. Yeah. and you're working with somebody who needs guidance, who really could benefit from uh, a nudge in a safe and good direction. And you realize this is what leaders are doing all the time. They're connecting with the people that they serve and working to influence them to go in the direction that they want their agency or their company to go in. Uh, so I started to find a, a lot of synergies with negotiation and leadership and um, later went to uh, Harvard University to their program on negotiation, their course on negotiation and leadership. And I found that to be fascinating. That was really a, a big motivator for me to dive into uh, leadership more broadly and apply some of these lessons that I was learning in negotiation on the front lines to apply uh, to, to a broader audience. Yeah. It's it's cool that you were thinking of all, all these things, uh, you know, to apply into the everyday life in terms of business, in terms of, uh, you know, leadership within the community, that that, that sort of thing. Um, what in terms of because I think uh, when people think police negotiator, there's this sort of um, stereotype or this mindset that goes into the lone guy or girl who's, you know, alone in a room speaking to somebody one on one. Um, and, may, and maybe it's, you know, like it, it's uh, negotiators because it's such a high-end sort of high-stress, high-end role. They're A-type personalities. They're the alpha males or alpha, you know, that, that sort of perception. But 
and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've only had a limited capacity in terms of speaking to any negotiators from Victoria Police, my, my previous agency um, or organization. Um, it, it's very much a team dynamic, isn't it? There's, um, in, in terms of how I think we used to operate, it was there would even be, if possible, if you could have that protracted sort of time, timeline, a mental health uh, practitioner there going through maybe potential mental health notes, if that person had any, um, your teammates, uh, and then uh, I'm just using air quotes here, but like a handler to, to make sure that you yourself as a negotiator, you know, you're not getting too emotional or too flustered, sort of keeping you in, in, in check. Um, maybe kind of like the drummer in a band. Um, is, is that about what, what's the mindset like of a negotiator? What's the kind of uh, profile that would you know suit uh, somebody as a negotiator? Yeah, so let me let me kind of go back to the beginning. Hollywood um, often depicts the hostage negotiator to be, as you said, the the solo practitioner. And they're always very good looking as well. I noticed that in, in Hollywood. So a lot of the Denzel Washington cast folks to be the hostage negotiators, which is really cool. You know, we'll take that as a compliment, of course. Uh, but that's that's really not how it goes. Um, maybe if if in an unusual situation, we start off with a single negotiator. Um, we know that that's only for a very short moment because the team is coming. It's absolutely a team sport. Even when we're just dealing with a single person as a crisis negotiation or an armed barricade, which is much more common than a, a hostage situation, um, we're still working as a team. And it's uh, a bit unfair when there's eight of us and one of them, but this is a life or death conversation. So we want it to be unfair. We want to make sure that we get the best results and the safest resolution to what could be a very dangerous uh, incident. And, uh, and absolutely, we're, we're working as a team. You have the, the primary negotiator, who's the person on the phone having the conversation. And that primary negotiator is going to be assigned a coach, a secondary negotiator. And truly, that's going to be the only person that's going to connect them to the outside world. They're going to be very focused on having this conversation. So if it's you and I, we're going to be face-to-face, -face, ideally. And you're going to be listening in on my conversation real time and sliding me notes and working on themes. And if there's information or intelligence coming in, you might slide that over to me and pass that along. Um, but to support us, there's going to be somebody else listening in that's going to be taking notes as a log officer, kind of as a legal background and as a scribe of what's happening. And they're probably scribbling notes all around us in our um, in the rooms that we negotiate, it's, it's whiteboards everywhere. So we can jot down information about the, the subject we're speaking with. Um, about any hostages, any victims, any uh, family, weapons, demands, all things like this. So we're surrounded by information, but we've also got technical people who are setting up our equipment and helping out with that. We have intelligence folks who are working to gather information. And I think that that's such a critical piece that's often overlooked. Uh, Hollywood will show that the great negotiators are the smooth talkers. They've got great tactics at the table. But I think that your power in negotiation comes from information and options. Yeah. So if they're digging information for me, that's really, really helpful because they're they're on these social media, they're on um, background, pulling police reports, criminal history, any pieces of information that we can get is really, really helpful to us as uh, the primary negotiators. Uh, we always have a team lead that kind of liaisons with other aspects of the team and, and command for the entire SWAT team. So there's a lot of us working together to make this happen. And uh, if, if we find success, it's not because the primary negotiator is an amazing talker. It's because we have a team that's functioning and everybody knows their roles. Egos are checked at the door and really can work interchangeably. You know, if I, I'm not going to complain that I'm not the primary negotiator, that I'm going to be jotting down notes and uh, being a coach this time, we all know that we can function in different roles depending on the needs of the unique situation. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a, a look behind the scenes at a team and how that functions in a, uh, a SWAT police negotiation. Yeah. And yeah. to the other piece, uh, I think there's a, a misconception that, you know, we're just, we, we can talk people into anything and that it's, it's gotta be this very dominant personality. And I think that the really successful negotiators are tremendous listeners. They ask good questions and they listen. And with that comes a lot of patience. And um, I need to do better in that area. I know very well that I become impatient sometimes. Uh, so we need to be patient. We need to be good listeners. And again, that comes back to the philosophy that the great negotiators have a lot of information. 
And truly, we're working with the person in crisis to help them solve a problem. And how can we solve a problem if we don't know what it is? And a lot of times, particularly in law enforcement, and particularly with high performing leaders, we just try to solve the problem and move on. And that's just, it's, it's a result of us being very busy. We have this thing to deal with, and now we got to move to the next thing. So it's not that we don't know how to listen. It's not that we don't know how to understand what a situation is, but we're conditioned that here's the problem. Boom. We solve it and we move on. Yeah. So we, we use phrases, shortcut phrases like, Oh, I understand. And that's probably one of the worst things that you can say in these conversations, because um, I don't understand. First of all, I haven't lived your life. I don't know what it's like to work in your police department and move across the world to start a new role um, so for me to say to you, oh, I understand that's, that's not right. And it's, it's a very, um, it, it's, it's almost disrespectful to say, I don't need to hear anymore. I have it. You can stop talking. I get it now. So we just want to keep asking questions and, and getting that information and, um, want to be a trusted advisor. I, I don't want to come in and start telling you what to do. I want to be really thoughtful about when I deliver this message to you and, and what I say and when I say it. And that's a big mistake sometimes that we just come in and we rush it and tell you, hey, you should do this or you should do that. And that's really going to be an autonomy trigger to you to say, hey, I'm, I'm now telling you what to do. Who am I? Yeah. We haven't really established that bond yet. We haven't established that relationship. So when I teach negotiators and new police officers about crisis communication, particularly in these role plays, I really stop them to say, get away from the goal of getting them to put the knife down or drop the gun and get in the mindset of our goal is to form a bond with this person. Yeah. And when we adjust their mindset a little bit and say, your goal is to form a bond, a connection with this person. Now, instead of giving me orders to do something, we're, we're having much more of a conversation. You see that power dynamic start to melt away a little bit. And now we're having a conversation. Now I'm interested in you. And it's, and it's, it's more about, help me get to know you, help me get to know your situation. How might I be able to contribute working with you? It's not my problem to solve. It's us working together to find um, a good agreement to this situation and, and a, a solution that we might be able to put into practice. Yeah. And, and I love that. And um, I love as well, the, the phrase that you said there was, um, you know, everyone's ego is just sort of checked at the door. It doesn't matter if you're the, you were a lead negotiator yesterday, you might be the note taker today. Um, I think a lot of those, you know, and, and that's in a sort of a critical incident sort of moment that, that we, we've been chatting about, but the application is, is so uh, diverse, you could apply to, you know, it, it sounds almost like your uh, project management in, in terms of a business sense where you've got a task that you, you know, you want your company to go this direction, let's get everyone together, let's get people from, um, you know, acquisitions in, let's get the talent team in, let's, let's put our brains together and, and, and you know, move our company forward. Um, and I think that's, I'd like to move on to the sort of the TED talk that you did. Um, I think that's what opened a lot of people's eyes was, I'm assuming the, the, the audience in the TED talk, it wasn't just law enforcement, it was just a wide variety of people. And certainly, um, you know, the, the TED talk as an as as a, as a organization, you know, it caters to such a diverse group of people um, that it was, it was one brilliant, uh, I think, for, for those of us in law enforcement to see another law enforcement, you know, brother in blues, if you will, on, on stage speaking to these people. Um, but it was also just nice to have, uh, you know, that topic of uh, crisis negotiation being applied to so many other, uh, you know, facets of society. Um, also for me, it was perfect timing because it was just before I had kids. So I was like, you know, this is perfect. <laughs> um, but, you know, on a serious note, uh, like I mentioned previously, as a young constable, um, you know, we we're taught certain things at the academy. It's not until you do it in the real world that, that you know you sort of um it's a it's a bit of a gut check i i always um and and the way that you broke it down was so simple you know in terms of i'll, I'll do the acronym now but uh utdr so understanding timing delivery and respect do you mind just going just really briefly through those um those little headers if you will yeah so in my talk i try to make it as simple as i can because um I want this to be useful to people um, in difficult conversations. So uh, four principles that I discussed, understanding, timing, delivery, respect. And uh, I 
first of all, see these things working as a in, in a circle. So I visualize this as a circle, unlike a staircase, which is kind of um, a, a very accepted uh, visual and standard in crisis negotiation. Um, I see this as a circle. And for me, it comes back to the bond. This represents the bond that we're creating. So we're just touching these principles and going around and around. So first of all, we need to understand what the situation is. Um, we Each situation is different. Um, if we have hostage situations, there's different types of hostage situations. So we're going to have different strategies if this is a bank robbery gone bad versus a domestic, emotionally fueled um, incident. So we need to figure out what do we have, um, who are we working with, and that's a first step in, in any negotiation. And that could be um, done even before we start the conversation. It's done throughout the conversation. So this is the principal piece. Um, timing is knowing when to deliver your message. And we can have the right strategy um, and, and do it in the right way. But if it's done at the wrong time, we could really um, not only be ineffective, but harm our position if we're pushing for a resolution too early without making sure the person feels heard, without getting all the information that we need to make a good decision. So let's be thoughtful about when we say what we say. Third principle of delivery, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So often we if we take time to prepare, and a lot of people don't prepare for their negotiations, which it's stunning to me that they wouldn't do that. But the people who do are really thoughtful about building their content and getting their talking points and saying, this is what needs to be put on the table. But rarely do people take time to be mindful of their delivery and how they actually present this. And this could be the medium that you use. Are we going to present this on uh, text message versus voice versus Zoom versus face-to-face, -face, but also the the rate, the rhythm, the pressure, the volume, the tone of what you're saying. And this is so important because I don't think that people make all of our their decisions um, thoughtfully and rationally. We make a lot of decisions based on emotion. Yeah. So what feeling are we creating with the people that we're conversing with? How do they experience us and do they like us? Are we really connecting with them? And it's, it's not really going to be in the content of this. It's going to be how they feel in that conversation with you. And a lot of that comes down to your delivery. So this is an important aspect that we must consider. And finally, the, um, the respect piece that um, we have to know how powerful respect is. And most professionals say, no, I, I got this. And, you know, because we're taught to be respectful. Yes, please. No, thank you. And, and we get that part. But for me, respect is about emotion and being mindful of uh, emotional triggers. Uh, fairness is a big one. Autonomy, empathy, recognition is a big one. And, and these are some of the four that we teach not only now in law enforcement, but in corporate training, um, the four aspects of respect and how these are such drivers of human behavior that we can really push back if we feel we're being treated unfairly. We really push back if I feel my autonomy is being infringed upon. So let's examine how people make decisions. Let's examine these emotional triggers. And this is what respect is about. And people will feel this. They'll feel that connection and feel that respect. And then we're really able to get them going in the direction that we need to. So I felt like these have if I had the opportunity to speak to law enforcement and potential negotiators across the country and around the world, I would want them to remember these four words because under pressure, you won't remember the full yeah. principles. You'll remember just the word. And, and I know that because I've done that. Yeah. I've been through that uh, a 40 hour class on this. And then I sit down to do my first negotiation. It like disappeared. It's, it's out of my mind. I was like, what am I supposed to do here? So you need the most basic structure to help you go in the right direction. So that was the content of my talk. And my, and my thought was if I could reach a few people to help them have their difficult conversations, it would be a, a real success for me. And, and you're right that in the live audience, there's, uh, I think they said there were maybe 700 people there. 
And I, I would trust that the only people in law enforcement were uh, the small delegation from my uh, from my work that wanted <laughs> to get out of work for the afternoon to to hear me uh, present my talk. Um, but there was um, there was one other law enforcement presenter from the Chicago area, and he was the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department. So I kind of had a chuckle because at the time I was like, well, I supervised two people and this other guy supervises 13,000 police of the Chicago Police <laughs> Department. So this really isn't a very fair uh, competition here that he's going to blow me away. And, uh, you know, it's cool to meet him. He's got a fabulous talk is Gary McCarthy. Uh, who's got a talk that's still uh, very relevant today. And, uh, you know, I encourage people in law enforcement to enjoy his talk as well. But what was interesting was this. They said, if your talk's any good, we'll publish it on, on YouTube or put it out on the internet, on our website. And, and then it's out there for, for the broader society to, to hear. Yeah. And after it was published, I would start to get some feedback from people outside my profession. And I always found it very interesting. You know, I love when people in law enforcement hit me up because there are not a ton of law enforcement TED Talks. There's probably 100,000 or 200,000 TEDx or TED Talks out there, um, but not a ton in law enforcement. Yeah. So it's, it's great to hear from people in the field. Um, but hearing from people beyond law enforcement to say, I work in whichever field this is, and I work in sales, I work in leadership, um, I work uh, in this church, I work in all these various places, and I heard your talk, and what you're saying makes sense to me, and I'm going to use this, and I'm going to try to apply this model in the work that I do. I was like, well, that's interesting, because I had never thought of that application in that area, and I, I have no idea what people in marketing doer procurement this is not yeah. what i do you know I'm, I'm not out there making sales so that's cool that you're using this so as it started to grow and i got more of this i was like man people are asking me about negotiation i should probably learn a little bit more about negotiation more broadly so that's when i kicked it into overdrive and started ordering books not to say that i didn't know negotiation but it was specific to police negotiation but now i want to know um, what are they doing in business negotiation? Yeah. Who are the academics that are teaching this? So I started gobbling up books and, and grabbing everything that I could read and going to executive education uh, on negotiation and really started uh, trying to uh, get the more broad concepts of negotiation. And with that, that only fueled more interest in police negotiation to say, here's what they're doing in business. Have we ever considered these principles? Have we ever thought of these tactics? How can we steal this, use this to save lives yeah. on our side? Because there's tremendous research because they're all trying to make money. I was like, this is really, really cool. And, and trying to bring that into the conversation in law enforcement negotiation. And I love doing that in my classes for police to say, all right, let's talk about these people who are not law enforcement negotiators. Here's what they're teaching. Yeah. And we say that's perfectly applicable to what we're doing. So there's a ton of crossover. And I get that as well. People in business are fascinated by how we are using influence and how we're getting what we want when really we don't have a lot to offer. And what we have to offer is not good. We, yeah. we have a, a SWAT team to offer. We have jail to offer. <laughs> and yet we're still getting the deal done. Yeah. So it's fascinating. So then fast forward a little bit further. Um, now I've started... Uh, a business with uh, some with my partner up in Canada, uh, the Negotiations Collective, and now we're doing corporate training on negotiation, on conflict resolution, uh, to audiences well beyond law enforcement that are fascinated on hearing this and find this very useful information to do better in their professional roles beyond anything that I could have imagined. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and, 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 you know, like partly in the information age as well, like um, there's, there's so much information out there to be had. It's finding the right ones to apply to your situation. Um, and, and it's amazing that you were saying, you know, out of the hundreds and thousands of TED Talks, only a handful are from law enforcement. You know, it, there, there is still that sort of not so much secretive culture, but like we don't want to reveal all the cards on the, you know, on our hand sort of uh, mentality. Um, but yeah, information sharing is, is so important, so vital because there's always something to be learned. Um, I, I want to focus as well just on the, um, the actual, so the understanding component. Um, you, for, for my experience, and, and, and again, not as a negotiator by any capacity, but developing that rapport and building that understanding, you know, typically in a person in a crisis point, um, usually as a, as a you know, street cop, if you will, um, I dealt with mainly people in mental health crises 
um i just found that when you reframe your thinking in in understanding you know like you could go to mental health callouts multiple times in a day and, and it sort of becomes you could become very compliant with it but i always made the uh sort of set myself up or made my mind change my mindset to be like well maybe they're at this crisis point because for so long they've been misunderstood and you know sometimes all it could take was just you spending time with them building that rapport and building that understanding with them you know when you have record numbers of suicides in in, in teenagers uh in the veteran community these are all sort of segments of society which are you know fairly isolated so like you were saying before like how can you or myself as a 34 year old Asian uh, Italian male, you know, understand what a Caucasian female is feeling in this moment, uh, or, you know, a veteran who's come back from war is feeling. So we're also, you know, in this, in this, I'd say 2022 is very different to when you gave that Ted talk where we're, we've become, uh, I suppose, very, uh, we can pick our little echo chambers on the internet, uh, we can only, you know, we, although there is a lot of information out there, you can find information that's only specific to you and, and only what you want to hear. Um, how do you, do you think things have changed since, since that TED talk that you gave and um, in terms of how we communicate with each other, especially with the online component these days? Um, and, and how would you suggest people, you know, to better develop that rapport building that understanding amongst each other? Yeah. And, and there's things that, that have changed. And I think that my, opening line, if I remember, I talk about the world being in crisis or people being in crisis. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah I, I would love to say we went in a great direction since 2016. But this <laughs> has not been an easy stretch of years for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> so we're, we're still working through a, a number of different crises. Uh, so I think that that component is still uh, a, a little bit current and relevant. <clears throat> but to your point, we have gotten um, very tribalized that we're there there's a lot of tribal identity and with that then we're, we're conservatives or we're liberals we're this race or that race and and it's almost a, a very segmented um world that we live in yeah and within these tribes there's almost a, a punishment or a fear of you're, you're going to be canceled or, or pushed out of this group if we are even seen having a conversation with that other group. Yeah. And it, it could be in religion, it could be amongst countries, it could be in any different group where we have different segments of us, we have us and them. And it takes away our ability and willingness to be curious, that I'm almost not allowed to be curious. How in the world on college campuses are we not allowing speakers to come in and speak to students? Yeah. How are they being canceled? What kind of university experience is this where I am so afraid of hearing something that might be different from what I believe in that we can't even have this? And I would go as far as to say there is a, a percentage of people in the United States that feel that the Constitution, you have a constitutional right to not be offended, to have a safe space where I don't have to hear these things. And, and that's it's, it's really concerning yeah. to say that um, not only are we unwilling to hear a different point of view, but we're afraid to hear a different point of view. And uh, to your point of echo chambers, that's it. You know, if, if I can't examine what I believe, if I can't hear different thoughts, um, that's, that's really going to put me in a difficult position to function effectively um, in groups of people, yeah. in leadership roles, because where, where now is the empathy? If everybody is the same as me, if everybody's got the same experiences, um, where is the empathy? And, and what a boring life is that? You know, if I surround myself with everybody just like me, I know what we're going to be eating for the next 30 straight days. <laughs> and at some point, this could get very boring. Yeah. I know what we're going to be um, watching on television or what we're going to be reading, what my routine is. I think it's fascinating to be surrounded by people who are different from me. So we're losing our ability to have that conversation. We're losing our willingness to ask questions. We're losing our willingness to just engage with people who are different from us. And mm -hmm. 
there's a fear that they're going to snap back at us. And I mean, you, you open up Twitter and it's just people yelling at each other and canceling each other and hashtagging each other. Okay. If that's going to make you feel better, go, go ahead and do this. But where are the real conversations? Yeah. Where are we sitting down and saying, let me suspend my judgment of you for a moment. And we love to be judgy of people. It's so much fun to just point the figure and be, oh, that person, he's the problem. And, uh, and people ask me that, how do you have these conversations with people who have done these bad things, both in my work as a detective and my work as a negotiator? And um, I think it's, it's because it's just so easy to say, well, that's the bad person. They did this bad thing. And um, we, we just need to cancel them and be done um, to say, you know, they have a story too. And it doesn't mean that I, uh, agree with what they did. I accept that, or I encourage what they did. Not the case at all. Um, but truly just being willing to understand that. So the principle is not to agree with what you did or to say it's okay, or, or to give an excuse for what you did, but truly let me understand what you're thinking, why you're thinking that and your experience. And now this just makes you curious. If I say, I want to know everything about this person here, and that's your goal. I, I I want to know everything about them. It makes you curious and you can do it in a thoughtful, compassionate way that uh, makes them want to share that story with you. And the FBI teaches the eight skills of active listening. And I remember being in their class initially thinking that, all right, you know, I've, I've been through a, a behavioral science degree and, you know, now we're doing FBI high level stuff. Uh, we're all professionals in here and you're going to teach us how to listen. <laughs> What, what are we doing here? You know, I, I give me like the magic thing to say, or the super secret behind the scenes, the magic wand to make this all disappear. And we're going to sit down and listen. And, and we're doing that. We're sitting back to back in these chairs. So now we lose all the visual cues and we're just listening intently to what this person says. And we have to maintain a dialogue. Yeah, It's not just me in a monologue. It's a dialogue. So I, have a couple sentences. Now I kick it back to you. And, and how do we create this conversation? So you learn to be a great listener. And it's like, wow, this is, it's so basic. It's so simple. But then when you start getting out into society, you realize we're terrible listeners yeah. that then you come into the question of, well, what if I don't care? What if I'm a leader and I don't care what this person has to say, or what if I'm a negotiator and I don't care what this person has to say? Um, that's pretty simple. You better start caring or you shouldn't be in that leadership role, or you shouldn't be in that negotiator role. When you're having such responsibility in your position, it's important that you are thoughtful and mindful of this other person and, and really get into and be willing to get into. And if you don't care, maybe it's time to reassess what's your role here. Yeah. And, and that's all right. We'll, we'll have another position for you doing the work, but maybe not as the negotiator, as the leader. Yeah. Gotcha. No, uh, the, yeah, it's, um, the, the whole uh, yeah, idea of sort of sitting down and having a, a long form conversation these days is, is, uh, is, you know, so somewhat difficult, like, cause everything's so instant, it's instant gratification. You know, you want things done quickly. Um, like we mentioned previously as well. Um, and that's why I love these podcasts, listening to podcasts, conducting podcasts myself is because you get to have a long form conversation. So somebody doesn't just hear a soundbite, they can hear, you know, full sentences basically, but, but just more, more so the, the thought behind what the people are saying, uh, and, and people have an opportunity to explain what they're saying as well to have a better understanding. Um, the other thing uh, that on, on the sort of acronym list I wanted to go through was delivery. Um, now, you mentioned uh, being a negotiator and uh, doing a lot of the negotiations on the phone. Um, I don't know if people are aware, but statistically, in terms of communication, about 55 or over 50% of your communication is through nonverbal communication. So you know, your, your posture, your body language, that sort of thing. And only a small fraction of communication is really uh audible or, or or sort of verbal communication how um how how do you guys as negotiators guys and gals negotiators go through the delivery um you know being on the phone uh and, and i suppose it relates to sort of the everyday life because a lot of communication is done like you mentioned through twitter um you know uh instagram posts things like that so how do you get that delivery across using other mediums yeah so this this is where we have seen a big change even in the last couple of years, um, but certainly over the last decade or so that traditionally our crisis negotiation is done by phone. And when the FBI behavioral 
uh, change staircase came around 30 years ago. That's really how we did negotiations by phone. But think of um, how communication is changing. We have all these different channels of communication that were not available before. Um, I remember when the discussion began, well, what about text message? Can we negotiate by text message? No, no, well, we can't do that because that's not how we've always done it. Okay. Um, well, what if the person we're speaking with, what if that's how they communicate? All right. Well, we better learn how to do that then. Yeah. <laughs> or by, by Facebook messenger or any medium where it's just typing. Um, I ask my my classes, I teach negotiation classes for police. I ask them by a show of hands who here has gotten training on how to negotiate by text message or in written format. And across the board, it's just about nobody. Yeah. So in that case, um, we, we're now getting rid of the delivery aspect. So my rate, my rhythm, the pressure, the volume, the tone, all that is now gone. The, the body language, the gestures, the facial expressions, that's all gone. And, and that's the majority of the communication. Now what? How, how do we communicate here? The, the difference between capital letters, non-capital letters, spacing, emojis. Is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? What's the upside? And But look at the, the evolution of emojis. Why do they exist? Because this communication is void of emotion. And it helps give us context that we naturally would otherwise see. So I, I think there might be a role for that in there. You have to be yeah. careful with this, but might this give context? And do we have to give context now if we're doing text negotiations to make it abundantly clear? Because I'm saying it this way, and in my mind, I'm viewing it like this. Could that be misinterpreted significantly? So if we're starting at text, I want to move to voice. If we're going to voice, I want to move to this, yeah. to a face-to-face. -face. Now, I've done true face-to-face -face negotiations in my career, and what they all have in common is they're all very dangerous. The guy with the knife, the holding knives to his throat, the guy with a gun to his head, the guy throwing huge bricks of concrete off a building. Those are all dangerous, but now we can do face-to-face -face by Zoom and, and FaceTime and Skype and all these yeah. different video chats. And this was, for me at least, very unheard of three years ago. If I did a, a couple video chats in my whole life, maybe there, there was a couple. And that was, this must be some weird international person that, that why do you want to do a Skype with me? This is so unusual. Yeah. But now a couple of years past COVID, everybody is doing this probably all day, every day. And it's very common for us to do this. So again, this is changing our communication because you got these negotiators that are part of SWAT team. So we're coming in with uh, the OD green uniforms. We got the helmet on and some guys just to be cool, we're going to put face paint on. And now I'm going to have a conversation with you and tell you, hey, I care about you. I want to connect with you. And I'm looking at this army guy on the other side of the camera going, what the heck's going on in the background? We got guns and all this stuff. So is that changing how, how we communicate? Significantly changing. So pe people will throw out the percentages. Who knows? It depends on on the type of conversation. You know, if we're doing text message conversation, 100% of it's going to be in the content because yeah. there is no delivery aspects really. So are we being thoughtful of how we are going to engage with this person? The delivery options are now pretty wild. You know, there's a lot of different options here. And I think that great communication is face to face because I can see you, I can experience yeah. you. We can see the smile, the nodding. And now I challenge these negotiators. Now you're expected to have a whole other skill set that the last generation of negotiators never got. So I say, go study Joe Navarro. He's a retired FBI guy that teaches body language and study the behavioral panel Four guys that do nothing but study behavior. And they're talking about blink rate and they're talking about all these different things. And I was like, how can they see all this? This is fascinating. And on top of what's already a very difficult job, now we're piling on all these new skills that you need to have because now we're communicating in this 3D world. It's so different. Yeah. And again, it's becoming more complicated, more challenging. So to be great at this, here's a whole bunch more skills that you need to learn <laughs> to go out and be great to find good success.
Yeah. And I, I look forward to seeing what negotiations are like in the metaverse as well, eventually, you know, in, in, <laughs> um, in the virtual reality stream. Um, look, I, I know you're uh, short for time and I, again, appreciate you, you waking up <laughs> super early for me. Um, what's what's in store for the future? Um, you're obviously still active law enforcement. Um, you've got your company um, you set up. You do a lot of keynote engagements. Uh, what's what's the future holding for uh, Scott Tillema? I love my work in law enforcement, but now that I'm going to hit 20 years at the end of this year, that's the minimum threshold for retirement for my agency. Um, certainly that that is going to be a consideration, um, but I but I love my, my work in law enforcement because I know that we can be so impactful in making sure that we have highly educated, highly trained professional police officers that um, I think that I, I may still remain in law enforcement, either full-time or in a... Uh, um, reduced capacity somehow. Um, but I, I really want to bring this message of connection and bonding and influence to broader society because there's such a demand for it and people are so interested in it. So I, I love my work as a keynote speaker, reaching and connecting with audiences of all different backgrounds. I'm fascinated by them and what they work, their work and how I can bring value to them. So I'm going to continue in 2023 and beyond um, as a professional keynote speaker, as a professional corporate trainer of negotiations, uh, continuing to learn and build my own knowledge, skills, and abilities, and really try to connect with others uh, across the country, around the world, and bring them some real value from the front line to let them know, here's here's how it is for real. Here's my experiences, and uh, however we can bring value to them, that's, that's what I'm looking to do. But I, I would love to bring more of a focus on speaking, teaching, and training. I, I really find that to be interesting and exciting, and hopefully that's where uh, that's where we'll go. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, you're, you're literally at the front line of, of, uh, of, of, of negotiating in crisis negotiations and having those lessons learned uh, being fed to us in the you know, private sector or just in everyday life. Um, what, what, what a time to be alive, really, uh, with that information sharing again. Um, and so, Scott, how do people get in touch with you? Um, what's the best uh, way to, you know, yeah, say hi or just you know, whatever. I'm a very normal guy. I'll assure you that. So I'd love to connect on LinkedIn with any of your listeners. I'll uh, send a, a personal greeting and uh, and say hello. Uh, I've got my uh, own website, scottillema.com, uh, also negotiationscollective.com. And if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about my work, how we do it, as you mentioned, uh, feel free to check out my TED Talk, The Secrets of Hostage Negotiators. And, uh, you know, I'd love to connect with your listeners, especially if they're interested in this area, police negotiation, negotiation more broadly, and uh, and hear from them. Love to hear from your listeners and how they're applying this work and hear what questions they have. Awesome. Thanks. And I'll, uh, I'll link all the, the sites and stuff uh, on the show notes uh, below. Um, Scott, thanks again. Uh, thank you for your continued service in, in policing uh, and and obviously what you're doing uh, now to the masses, really. And uh, hope hope you're... Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a sh career shift in drumming at some stage in the future. <laughs> um, happy drumming. Uh, thanks again, Scott. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Cheers.